What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golver with The Washington Post. I am back again with Michael Pina of SB Nation. Now, Michael, I spent some real time yesterday just sort of ruminating on the state of Steph Curry because the Golden State Warriors star guard, the two-time MVP, three-time champion, is finally returning to the court Thursday night against the Toronto Raptors. He basically missed four months with a broken hand, um, and he was itching to get back. I'm sure everyone saw his tweet saying, it's about time, three exclamation points. Um, just from the punctuation alone, you can tell his excitement, uh, Michael. Now, uh, the way I want to take this conversation is, is sort of where I went on my mental journey yesterday, because all this time off, it kind of gave you an opportunity to just reassess everything about Steph Curry, like to think back on those high moments, but also to realize like this guy has an awful lot of basketball left in him, right? And I think it's it's so easy to fall into the trap for guys like him and Kevin Durant where they're out of sight, out of mind, and dorks like you and I will just get obsessed with the next generation of Giannis and Zion and Luka and maybe forget um, you know, what these superstar level guys are capable of. And so uh, I guess I want to pose this question to you, first of all. Uh, what exactly are you expecting to see from Steph Curry over the next month or so down the stretch of uh, this season? But I think more importantly, big picture, when you think about like Steph Curry's next chapter, right? Uh, whether that's next year or say over the next two or three seasons, uh, you know, the, the next era of Steph Curry, what do you think is possible? What, what do you see as kind of his ceiling or his best case scenario? Right, so let's break this down into two parts, as you said. Can we we, we focus on the uh, the next couple weeks, I guess, to start? Um, you know, I I am not that excited about this, and I don't really know why. I think like I've thought a lot about it since you've sent me over the outline, and I just feel like you know it's really cool that Steph is back, and I do enjoy watching him play. And I don't want to sound like a hater or anything like that, but watching him play in, you know, with the teammates that he has, like really bad teammates, bad team. Uh, I, I'm personally kind of more mentally ready for this year's playoffs, and I'm really getting excited for that. And there's just like no stakes with these Warriors games, and. So I'm just kind of down on the whole thing, <laughs> to be honest. I don't mean to be like raining on your excitement right now. Um, no, it's but... good. Honesty is the best medicine here. I think it's important. And I also have a sneaking suspicion Steph's going to hit a 35-foot bomb and Mr. Optimistic Michael <laughs> is going to come right back out and say, hey, I, you know, I was, I was uh, pumped for the Steph Curry return the whole time. No, your skepticism is warranted, right? It's a weird situation. I think a lot of teams would have just basically said, see you next year, right? Don't come back. And it really it does seem like in this kind of push and pull, this tug of war over Curry's return date that's kind of played out here over the last couple of weeks, it seems pretty clear he's the one driving it. Like he wants to kind of get back on the court and get his rhythm. And frankly, I don't blame him because I think when you're in his position, like the all-time great stuff is already solidified. I mean, he's a first ballot Hall of Famer right now, two-time MVP, unanimous MVP, three titles, five finals trips, all of it. And, you know, he's playing against history now. Like, he's playing against the greats. And we don't typically can, you know, put him into this conversation of, like, Michael versus LeBron versus Kobe and all that. But when you're saying who's, like, the most important player of the last decade, it's him or LeBron. Personally, I would take LeBron, but he has a case too, right? So for him, any time away, 
has got to eat at him, and it also potentially influences like what his legacy is. So um, I am uh, pleased to see him back, and I, I, I'm actually with you, though. I don't expect a ton down the stretch. I think they're probably going to be careful with his minutes management, um, but I do think when you're a season ticket holder at the Chase Center paying you know, thousands, in some cases millions of dollars for your seats, you're pretty glad you get Steph Curry for the next month, right? No, I'm really glad that you brought that up because I don't, I mean, he is, just from reading quotes and reading tea leaves, like he does seem to be the driving force behind his return. As you said, he obviously wants to play. He's healthy enough to play. So he should be able to play. And, but I do want to say like, I think that the talk about him familiarizing himself with his current teammates in this roster and learning their tendencies and creating chemistry in the last 20 games. Like, I think that is just wildly overblown. Not to be, like, cynical, too cynical here, but I, I, I think it's more, like... I think it's more about the local ratings and, and selling tickets. And, you know, I there's a stat that I read earlier... Um, that 13 of their final, the Golden State's final 20 games are on national television and the, you know, NBC Sports Bay Area's ratings for Warriors games this year is, are down 66% from last season and the biggest drop of any regional network in the league. Uh, so I think his presence is undeniably good for, you know, changing the narrative potentially of television ratings being bad. This, it's been a season-long narrative and, you know, the, the last couple... Uh, last six weeks here, I guess, are typically the the regular season's most boring stretch. And so he will be a flicker of excitement and I will watch the Warriors play and I'll be pumped about that. But I just don't think there's any, there's just nothing like, there's no stakes here. And that's just kind of a bummer. It feels like a bunch of exhibition games. And that's really not what you want when you're watching an all-time great, as you said, a member of the Hall of Legends also, we should mention. <laughs> that's uh, right. Well, play there basketball. Are, there are a couple of basketball things that we can look at, right? I'm with you on like mm-hmm. the supporting cast guys where how many of those guys are going to necessarily be back next year. This whole chemistry building idea is definitely overwrought. But how does he function with Wiggins, and is it better than what we thought he was going to do with Russell? I think it's a a fairly key question. And again, it's not going to be a definitive answer, but you at least want to see how that relationship blossoms. And then also, you know, I think with Draymond, I mean, Draymond might be one of the biggest losers in the NBA this year. I mean, he went from like this swashbuckling power forward who's just talking trash to everyone to being like the butt of the most repetitive jokes from Shaq and Charles, basically like all season long, right? So does he get to, you know, save a little face here down the stretch? They recapture a little bit of their magic. I think that's another basketball thing that we can look for. Um, But I think it's also fair to say everything will be different for them on the court next year once Clay is back. And once they get that draft pick or whatever they trade that draft pick for, things are going to look quite different. So don't overanalyze, but go ahead and try to take some, you know, early returns uh, from those relationships that I described. You know, you were mentioning the TV ratings, and I don't want to step on a column that I wrote for the Washington Post, but guys, it should be up uh, on the website by the time uh, this is airing. Last year, Golden State had the best record in the Western Conference and the number one offensive efficiency uh, in the entire league, and they were number one in team merchandise sales, and Steph Curry was number one in jersey sales. This year, they have the worst record in the entire league, They have the worst offensive efficiency in the entire league. They have the second worst or the second biggest drop in local television ratings 
uh, like you're describing. They slipped all the way to sixth on team merchandise sales, which is surprising because they have the brand new move. Everybody wants the new San Francisco gear and everything else. Uh, and then on top of that, Adam Silver told me in that story I did in December, like Curry being out definitely was a major factor in our ratings being down, right? So if you want to mm-hmm. talk about the singular impact of a superstar player, this is one of the cleanest examples that we've ever seen, right? Where a, one guy can take you from best to worst uh, almost overnight. And of course, there's other mitigating factors, Kevin Durant's departure in free agency, Clay Thompson's injury, that influences some of those statistics. But the main driver of all that is Steph not being out there. And that's why I think it's important to take stock here, Michael, and to step back, because if you can go from, you know, first to worst overnight, you can go from worst to first fairly quickly, you would think, if that that kind of player has that type of influence. And so when I'm looking forward to the future here for Steph, you know, I think it's very important to realize, like, he's 31 years old. And so I went back through NBA history and just was like, so where were some of these guys when they were 31? Well, when Michael Jordan was 31, he was playing baseball. So he came back and won three more titles. When Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was 31, the Lakers hadn't even drafted Magic Johnson yet. So he went on to win five more titles uh, in the next nine years. When LeBron was 31, he took down the Warriors in the 2016 finals. He went on to make two more finals after that. And now he's got this whole media empire brewing and a possible finals trip going on. Uh, in Los Angeles. And when Shaquille O'Neal was 31, he was basically in the middle of his divorce with Kobe Bryant. He went on to the Heat, won a title there, and played for like eight more seasons, right? So that's not to compare Steph necessarily to any one of those individual guys, but it is to say like if you reach that MVP level, you know, that three titles type level, um, you're probably going to have a lot of basketball left in your tank at this age. And so that's why I just, you know, tell everybody kind of like brace for it like you know Steph Curry coming back might not shake the league up here in the short term but it's going to be an absolutely just gigantic factor when you're looking like next year's title race next year's Western Conference race I don't think we can overstate the impact of what he's him his comeback could mean for the league I don't think I'm as optimistic as you are about Steph's return I mean I, I definitely am not taking a pessimistic outlook here, like he could definitely be one of the league's best players next season. I'm actually counting on that to happen. But like when you emailed me the outline again, uh, like normally when that happens every week, I glance through it and I give it quick mental answers in my head to every question before I circle back and do a deeper dive into each one. But when you asked me what do I expect from Steph Curry's next chapter, it was just like really difficult for me to conceptualize what it could be because there's so many different variables that I see here because you know uh, there's his health there is what will Clay Thompson look like when he is back can he still guard opposing point guards because Steph obviously cannot Uh, how will the Warriors fix their defense you know they lose Andre Iguodala they lose Sean Livingston they lose a lot of institutional knowledge and just savvy veteran leadership Uh, you know defensive security blankets for Steph because he's He's, uh, you know, he's been weak on that side of the ball for much of his career. So when I look at Steph Curry and how kind of we judge him, like the standards are just so ridiculously high, you know, five straight trips to the finals, two MVPs, obviously he revolutionized the sport that I don't know how he could top that going forward. And that is, it's, it's an unfair way to kind of look at him uh, in the next few years of his career. But I just don't see... 
I think it's possible, but I don't see a clear path to it happening. Right, and I, I think that's um, actually uh, the the standard response, right? It's like he's kind of a victim of his own success in a way, and I guess that my counter-argument would be he could still have an awful lot of meaningful success. I mm-hmm. could still see him winning another title. I could still see him winning another MVP award down the line and still not reach those previous heights, right? And I do think that when you get into that situation, it's a little bit like with Kobe, with his second chapter, where you know, he gets the two more titles with uh, you know, Pau Gasol. And I think maybe a lot of people thought he was done after the three with Shaq and he could never do it. And there's been other cases where guys have... Um, like even with LeBron, I mean, when he got the 2016 title, that one seemed pretty impossible heading into that series or even in the early stages of that series. And a lot of the chatter was, is he ever going to be able to win another one? Right. So I would just say, let's be careful about writing him off because he has earned that respect. But I also think that there's some real factors that are working in his favor, but also some factors that are really working against him potentially. Right. So in terms of the factors in his favor, If you want a big market franchise that's been a destination for superstars, that has an ownership group that's willing to spend and willing to be super aggressive on trades, if you have a proven championship coach, you have a really smart front office, uh, and you've got your superstar level guy and Steph Curry locked in here for the next couple of years, that is better. That's a better situation for sustained winning than just about everywhere else in the league, right? I mean, that's an awful lot of boxes that you're checking that just other places can't check. And so I think that's number one. Those factors play in his favor. Um, In terms of the factors that are weighing against him, though, the health thing that you mentioned, I think, is the most critical. That is going to determine the arc of his future and whether he's able to sustain MVP level play um, going forward. I mean, we haven't really found defenses who can solve Steph at this point. His biggest enemy or his biggest uh, opponent is his own health. Also, I think his size is going to be just fascinating to watch here as his 30s play out because guys like Michael, LeBron, and even the centers that I was mentioning earlier, like Shaq and Kareem, they're able to age fairly well through their 30s because they can just rely on getting the free throw line a lot. They can go work in the post if they need to, and we've seen that from LeBron even more. And that's just not really an option for Steph, right? And so I do think that like as he progresses deeper into his 30s, he's probably going to become more of a off-ball shooting threat like a Reggie Miller type guy um, as opposed to like this lead you know playmaker balls always in his hands he's going to work off the dribble and everything else right so his he is going to age in a different manner um, than some of these other greats that I'm mentioning if only because he's not as big and not as powerful as those guys are and then also defensively it's just easier to hide a LeBron uh, at this stage of his career, you know, 35-year-old LeBron, then it will be to hide 35-year-old Steph Curry. You've already mentioned that, like, you know, he's going to struggle probably as he gets older as an on-ball defender or the lead on-ball defender. And it's not like you could hide him on a power forward or a center, right? Unless the league starts to really, really trend towards, like, Houston Rockets basketball, uh, you know, you pretty much have to put him on the other team's worst wing and just hope that he can hold his own, right? So there are some real basketball challenges facing him. But uh, I guess the main message and takeaway that I want to have is like, don't forget about this guy. Don't write this guy off Uh, because, you know, his peak seasons were not anomalies. He sustained insane levels of individual play that translated to just major, major winning to the point where it just felt so routine, like it was preordained and very few guys reached that level. And when those guys get there, 
they tend to be really good players deeper into their 30s than we might assume. Yeah, real quick historical stats since you you went to the record books there earlier, but uh, I looked up to see how many MVP winners because Steph's turns 32 uh, in a couple weeks, I believe. Uh, so I went and saw, <clears throat> looked up how many MVP, how many guys won the MVP uh, after their 32nd birthday. Only three players in league history have done it. Carl Malone, your favorite player of all time, did it twice. Uh, MJ did it twice, and Kareem did it once. So it, it is going to be pretty difficult for him to kind of reach that same level as the best player on a championship contender that he was at before. Um, what's really interesting about what you just said, as he ages playing more off the ball, you know, I picked Curry to win the MVP this year, which I'm just a genius. Um, and a, a big factor for that for me was I thought that, you know, he would have an opportunity to actually be on the ball a ton this season, like run more traditional pick and rolls in a different system that slanted more towards just his general brilliance than, uh, you know, him running off screens, setting back screens for guys, and then sprinting to the opposite corner. Um, just a, a system that would more, you know, I don't want to say he would look like what Trey Young looks like on the Atlanta Hawks right now and just running a ton of high pick and roll on every possession, but. I think that we would have seen Steph be unleashed. So I do agree with everything that you said about, you know, his size being an issue. And one of the reasons that uh, Steve Kerr a couple of years ago said that Kevin Durant was better was just he has that force, he has that size, um, that length, that power that Steph can never have just because of his body type. Uh, So, uh, I mean, when I look at kind of, what is what Steph can be going forward like for sure we're I I don't it's like I I keep saying I don't want to disrespect him but uh no you're being like unbelievably disrespectful (laughs) just writing him off and saying he's basically toast Uh, that's one other real quick let me hop in here because I want to say one other factor that I forgot to mention in his favor is that by like revolutionizing the league and having everybody copycat him he has set himself up really well to age gracefully because the whole league is like in his style of play, right? And we're seeing this with LeBron in terms of like, okay, so some of LeBron's efficiency is slipping, right? Uh, But his points per game number is still looking good. His impact on games is still pretty good because uh, the modern game favors the sort of like the most skilled and the the best all around individual talents, Mm -hmm. right? Because offense is up, pace is up. Um, and, you know, defense is basically out of style. And I think if you're Steph and, like, you're trying to sort of, you know, cling to your prime once you're getting to, like, age 34 or 35, like, you would rather be playing in this modern style than the way the game was 10 or 15 years ago. It just, it's kind of like a, a, a booster seat, you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. I totally agree with that. Uh, and I think, I, I agree with that, but I also think that defenses are not going to be completely caught off guard by a guy who's pulling up from three, uh, from 30 feet from the basket anymore. So that could play to his detriment at some point. But I think my my greater worry or cause for concern going forward with Steph is just so much more about his team and the roster. And, you know, uh, I look at his cast, supporting cast right now, for next season and it's like Jordan Poole and Andrew Wiggins and Marquise Chris and Eric Pascal and Damian Lee like this is not the supporting cast of a playoff team let alone a title contender so I just think that 
they have assets they have wiggins contract which they can potentially flip this summer or at some point down the line who knows what draymond green's future will be on this team uh i just think they need to be super aggressive and what they have now is definitely not good enough for steph to win another championship as the best player on a title team so that that does concern me as well i think there's a lot of work to do no, I hear you on that. Um, I, I think I'm feeling a little bit burned by my Lakers analysis from last year because I basically thought like LeBron's championship window was completely toast. I mean, you, you go back 12 months, they're basically shutting him down. Uh, Luke Walton's about to get uh, removed as coach. Magic's about to quit on the spot. The front office, you know, is, you know, daggers back and forth between Magic and Rob Palinka. And they just look completely like, a, you know, a clown show uh, for a while there last year and look how quickly it can turn right and so I, everybody in golden state they're already sweating Giannis. they want Giannis so badly it's I, I was i was waiting for you to bring Giannis up yeah it, it's a little <laughs> bit embarrassing but even just put aside the Giannis thing and, and go back to what i was trying to say earlier things can change quickly mm-hmm. uh one blockbuster trade can change an entire team's fortune lots of stars would like to play with steph because he makes you better it's demonstrated we've we've got proof of an A-list superstar saying, I want to go play with uh, Steph Curry. That was Kevin Durant. Uh, and they just have all these other things lined up. It's a great marketing platform. The Silicon Valley stuff is a real deal. Uh, they treat every, everything first class. The arena's nice. Like if you're in a recruiting pitch or you're trying to uh, convince a, a disgruntled superstar who you know, wants to demand a trade where he should play, I would not want to have to recruit against the Golden State Warriors. You know what I mean? Uh, even though as bad as this season has been, like that's a pretty formidable uh, opponent in those kinds of situations. And so there is going to be a little bit of a waiting game in terms of like, who do these guys get paired with? But again, it goes back to this idea that he could have a, a number of years of really high quality basketball left in him. I mean, Kobe gets his resurgence or his reinvention because of the Pau Gasol trade, right? Um, you know, for LeBron, it's the Anthony Davis trade. Uh, for Michael, it's the kind of the retooling effort. You're bringing in Rodman, and now they're basically unstoppable, right? Like, and and as I mentioned earlier, for a guy like Kareem, uh, you know, it's Magic showing up uh, as just this dazzling rookie. Or for Shaq, it's getting to to play your next chapter with Dwayne Wade. Like, there's a pretty long track record of guys at this stage of their career finding the right partner and taking it to the next level now well to ben, ben ben real quick two of those guys changed teams to do it lebron and Shaq, which i think should be pointed out pointed out here oh for sure well Shaq didn't have much say in the matter did he i mean it was, no it was uh that was kobe but uh yeah that's true and you could argue that steph decides there's a, a better situation uh, than golden state just because of the way their contracts have been uh, accumulated but i think what's more likely is that you know this first wave of teammates Guys like Draymond uh, in particular get sort of phased out um, and there becomes a, a new wave of teammates attracted to this hub where they're able to kind of retool around an older version of Steph and keep this thing going. That's that's a multi-year plan. I'm granting you that it, it may prevent them from actually being title contenders as soon as next season uh, because they have a lot of roster issues to work with. It's not Andrew Wiggins, and it definitely wasn't D'Angelo Russell. I can promise you that in terms of like the key, <laughs> the key teammates who are going to help take Steph over the top. I'm just saying don't write him off. Uh, la- last questions here for you quickly. Um, where do you think the Warriors will finish in the standings next year, and, and how far do you think they'd make it in the playoffs? And we can just assume 
Uh, I mean, you can take this any way you want in terms of what their summer likes looks like, but I think we can safely assume they're not getting another top 10 player this summer, right? There's just not really any supply of those guys available. So, you know, with that caveat, how good do you think they can be in next year's standings? Yeah, I was looking around at the Western Conference teams and kind of like what they would project to be next year. And I mean, it's just going to be a total bloodbath. Like you still have the teams in LA, you still have Denver, Houston, most likely, Utah, uh, uh, Luca with the Mavs and Kristaps Porzingis just looking like a total phenom once again, like they're going to be crazy good next year. Portland could be good next year. The Pelicans with Zion. Uh, I just wrote about the Phoenix Suns, your favorite team, and kind of the steps forward that they could make next year and the progress that they've uh, subtly been making. Um, I, I, like, I just can't guarantee a playoff spot for the Golden State Warriors. Michael, and come on. You, you've been so disrespectful to Steph here. You're going to tell me <laughs> Devin Booker and the Phoenix Suns are going to squeeze the Golden State Warriors out of the playoff picture next year. How quickly you've forgotten about Steph's greatness. Just DeAndre Ayton switching out on Steph and just blocking his threes <laughs> right back in his face. You hate to see it. Um, you know no, what, you, mean, what, you, what you really hate to see <laughs> is Dragon Bender outplaying DeAndre Ayton last week. But anyway, continue. Oh, geez. <laughs> fair point. Fair point. Um, no, I mean, uh, you, you just look at all these really talented teams. And when I look at the Warriors and how they can improve, obviously they're going to get Steph back. They're going to get Clay back. We'll assume that those guys are healthy. You know, they're both over 30. Uh, There's no promise that Draymond Green will be in shape for an entire 82 regular game season. I don't really, uh, as I said, I don't really like a lot of their supporting cast as is the Wiggins thing is a big question mark. Uh, You pointed out they're probably not going to get a top 10 player. So, you know, I don't know if a Brad Beal or someone like that could be attained. Uh, and, I mean, they do have some ways to upgrade. They have this uh, trade exception with Andre Iguodala that expires, I believe, July 7th for $17 million. Uh, they have the taxpayer mid-level exception, which is about $6 million. So if Joe Lacob's willing to spend, they can add pieces. But, like, free agency... The free agency pool this summer is not good, um, and uh, I just—it's just, just going to be really difficult for them to upgrade. And uh, again, I, thirty-two is not young, man, and he's got a lot of basketball on his legs, particularly in the last five years. And I just can't guarantee a playoff spot for them, and that's that's kind of shocking, to be honest. Yeah, I think if Steph's healthy um, next year, which is of course a huge if and major qualifier. I would pencil them in around like the five or the six seed in the Western Conference. I'd feel pretty comfortable that they make the playoffs. Um, But you've raised a long list of very valid concerns. And uh, this will be a fun one to argue about as we go forward here over the next 12 months. Hey, guys, what's up? This is Ben Golliver with Sports Illustrated's Open Floor Podcast. Keeping a healthy lifestyle should be easy, right? You eat veggies, drink green smoothies, exercise to get your heart rate up, and do yoga to bring your heart rate down. Woo. Well, maybe not so easy, but there is something that helps improve everything, and you can do it with your eyes closed. It's sleep. 
Sleep Number knows what it takes to sleep your best. The Sleep Number 360 smart bed lets you choose your ideal firmness, comfort, and support on each side, your Sleep Number setting. It's the perfect solution for couples. These beds are so smart, they respond to your every move and automatically adjust to keep you sleeping comfortably all night. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. And now, for a limited time during the Memorial Day sale, save $1,000 on the new Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed, a queen now for only $17.99. You'll only find Sleep Number at Sleep Number stores or by visiting www.sleepnumber.com. That's www.sleepnumber.com. Let's shift gears to another team that you just mentioned here briefly, and that was the New Orleans Pelicans. I mean, what's that saying about like the no good, very bad week? Um, that's pretty much what hit them, right? Because just as they were starting to gain some real momentum and move their way up the Western Conference standings, and as Memphis was starting to falter kind of right on schedule, and it felt like there was going to be two ships passing in the night here for that eighth spot, the Pelicans had kind of an unforgivable week, didn't they? I mean, I think they gave up almost 140 points to the Minnesota Timberwolves. And they lost at home in that game in just kind of a confounding effort. And then they are on national TV, you know, Zion versus Luca on Wednesday night. Very entertaining game. Not the most crisply played game down the stretch, especially defensively from either team. Um, but they wind up losing that one in overtime uh, and, you know, taking another loss. I believe they're on a three game losing streak right now. Michael, mm-hmm. I know you've like memorized the 538 playoff odds. What did this week due to New Orleans's playoff odds and their chances of getting that eighth seed and then what did you make of it yeah they I've I watched uh I watched the Timberwolves game and I watched well I, I think I've watched their last three games all losses and uh just real so quick it, like it's your fault basically it, it's a hundred percent my fault as all bad things tend to be um they have a 43% chance, according to 538, Whoa. of making the playoffs still, which is, I don't really get it, to be honest. Like, the the, the Memphis Grizzlies, which, who just absolutely spanked the Brooklyn Nets last night in Brooklyn, have an 18% chance of making the playoffs. And I know that the Grizzlies are really banged up, and I know that the Pelicans supposedly have a really easy schedule coming up, and they're healthy, and they've kind of, uh, you know, They've embraced this extremely up-tempo playing style, and Zion has had, for the most part, uh, some success in it, although I think teams are learning that he's literally not going to shoot outside the paint, and so when he's with Derek Favors in particular, he's just running into brick walls and getting his shot blocked as much as any player I've seen in uh, recent history. Uh, So he needs to adjust a little bit, um, but... Yeah, this doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. What do you think? 43% is really high for a team as far back in the standings as the Pelicans are. Right. Well, the first thing that jumps out to me is it's a lot lower than it was not that long ago, right? I mean, how much? what was the impact? Weren't they above 60% for a while? Yeah, on February 27th, they were at 68%. Oh, my. So it is, it, it, it is a drop for sure. Yeah, here um, you go. Here you go burying the lead, Michael. Um, yeah, so their playoff odds have almost been sliced in half by this rough stretch. Um, there was a lot of things I didn't like, uh, particularly from this Dallas game. And, you know, we don't need to kind of belabor the point, but Zion goes seven minutes in the fourth quarter, either resting or not getting a shot attempt uh, down the stretch of that game. They've got Derek Favors jacking up corner threes, they're airballing. 
everyone else is touching the ball except for Zion. It's unacceptable. And Alvin Gentry has already <laughs> gone out and pledged not to forget about Zion late in games like five times this year. And now you're in these uh, make or break type environment games and the ball is not in his hands or it's not even running through him. You're not allowing him to attract uh, attention and, and move the ball. It's unacceptable. Um, now, this is not to blame everybody besides Zion because he was not good defensively uh, in that game. Uh, he got lost uh, at a key moment. He was moment. atrocious. Yeah. <laughs> he was atrocious. He, he got lost in a really key moment uh, where Luca basically looked him off and found a wide open corner three shooter uh, that, that set up a late three pointer. Um, I think his teammates were kind of questioning his energy level at times early in that game. So maybe the fatigue factor and all the hype stuff is starting to catch up to him or he's starting to hit, you know, almost like a delayed rookie wall here a little bit. Um, or maybe that the burden of, you know, doing a lot on offense and the consistency that he's had to, you know, have in that role uh, is catching up with him. I mean, we know he plays with a crazy amount of energy. He's chasing these offensive rebounds and everything else. Uh, I think that we all just assume that it's like sustainable because he's like a Superman uh, physique type thing, but um, that was not the level that he was playing on uh, these last couple nights. And so I think uh, uh, the the common counter from the Pelicans will be, well, look, this is a pretty young team. Guys like Ingram, Lonzo, and Zion, they've never done it before. They're sort of figuring it out on the fly. And I think that's true, uh, but it's just unfortunate that they didn't have better structure late in that game on either end. And, uh, you know, I wonder, like, what does the front office think here? And I'm not saying that they're going to fire Alvin Gentry because of this, but I do, I mean, I just was watching these last couple of games thinking, like, these guys should just be better than this. Like, how is this even really happening? Like, they're not living up to sort of a base level standard that they should be operating on. Yeah, I have a stat that I wanted to kind of keep under wraps because I'm going to just write a whole column about this one number but no the... no just just blow, <laughs> blow it here for the open floor club they appreciate it michael come on i will um the pelicans are the fastest team in the last 25 years after an opponent makes a basket so basically they're just kind of ripping the ball out from under the net and zooming up the floor and it really when you watch them play it doesn't seem like they have focus in actually getting stops and grabbing rebounds they're more intent on uh the offensive side of the ball and being this run and gun team and that's Wait, all well say, and good are you saying they're letting the other team score so they can get out and transition more quickly <laughs> I mean, that, that's almost what it looks like when you watch them play for serious um uh, michael you know what that's called i believe that's called hustling backwards yeah that's not great um so i mean I, I'll, I'll be a little more critical of zion i think than than you are. Um, I don't, you know, and particularly in that Mavs game, like Maxi Kleber played just great defense. Chris Stapps Porzingis uh, was really aware of how they want to get Zion the ball. And Zion, you know, he is incredible. He is one of the most athletic players I've ever seen. Uh, he is, you know, a great ambassador of the game, particularly to people in the Netherlands. But the way he was just, uh, you know, completely stonewalled uh, in the paint yesterday or last night uh, against, you know, uh, there were there were positions where like he he 
had the ball at the elbow and he wasn't even late late in the game he was so so frustrated with the kind of the defensive coverage and the way that they knew what he wanted to do and were able to stop it that he flicked up this jumper that like knuckleballed towards the rim and he didn't even jump when he shot it it was just like what what is that shot and um you know doesn't really play in overtime i do think fatigue could be a factor but a a, a bunch of it is just like you know teams are kind of catching up to him in the scouting report i feel like no, that's true, Michael. I'm curious. Do you have any hot takes about the Pope or Mother Teresa? Because you've just taken down Steph Curry and Zion in the same podcast, so you're <laughs> on an absolute roll right now. And I just want you to keep it going. Um, I think this scouting report thing is is well founded um, because, but I also think that Dallas has some pretty good personnel to use on him, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so I think both those guys that you shouted out deserve some credit. And I think you know there's going to be a lot of focus about Luca closing out that game, the ridiculous moves that he was using. Uh, to just throw Drew Holiday off kilter. A lot of focus on Zion uh, all the time. I mean, Porzingis was phenomenal uh, in that game. I think it was five blocks, 30-plus points. He did have a shot that I I didn't love at the end of regulation, the contested fallaway two to, you know, potential game winner. A little bit too much of a hero ball shot. I wanted to see him do better there, but... Great defense uh, by Brandon Ingram. Yeah, that's that's true. He he did, uh, he played it soundly and and kind of forced him into the corner, but... uh, I mean, he was a real story from that game. You know, Porzingis is is maybe peaking here at the right time as Dallas starts to get closer to its own, you know, first playoff berth together. So uh, that could be another takeaway. Michael, we've got to move on because we have a million awesome questions from the Open Floor Globe, and we're going to try to get through as many as we can. As I told you earlier this week, one of the best batches of questions I think you and I have ever gotten. So I want to just thank everybody and just remind you, email us, openfloormail at gmail.com openfloormail at gmail.com. And we got a quick follow-up from our guy, Eton in Israel, Michael. And he writes, Today I was at work and I was asked to leave for two weeks because I recently returned from Vienna and Austria was on a list of countries that was deemed at risk for the coronavirus. It was kind of a crappy feeling. But on the way home, I was listening to Open Floor and hearing you guys read my email on the last episode, it really brought a smile to my face. So thanks for that. Michael, I don't know about you. This email hit hard. First of all, uh, Etan, I hope you don't have the coronavirus. Um, but second of all, can you just picture this guy in his car, Michael, uh, just getting this bummer of a news? Of what do you mean I can't go to work and like you know I have to be isolated in my house? And here we are as the antidote to his sadness. Feels great, doesn't it? It does. And I, I want to second that. I really hope that Etan is is safe and does not have the coronavirus that would not be a good thing to happen um it kind of reminds me honestly ben i don't know if you remember this but years ago uh you shouted me out on the open floor podcast and i didn't write an email or anything like that i think you were referencing the fact that i loved isaiah thomas and you were making fun of me but (laughs) it still did bring a smile to my face so i can totally relate to this emailer and i'm just happy that that we were able to to do that for him just hope that steph and zion aren't listening that's all i can say after your performance (laughs) today uh no do you have any other shout outs that you want to get out of the way just make people's day i don't know if it's like a a -a make-a-wish type thing that you've got in mind or you know feel free the floor is yours (laughs) no i'm i'm good thank you all right my damage has been done we got two hilarious emails making fun of me, Michael. I love it when this happens. So you'll remember on the last episode, I was commenting about how your brother-in-law or your aspiring brother-in-law uh, didn't know who LeBron James was. And I was stunned because I had I never met anyone who didn't know who LeBron was. 
And needless to say, uh, people with a little bit more of a worldly vision than myself were aghast at my <laughs> comments. So Steve writes in to say, I am a D.C. lawyer who was the deputy counsel for Senator McCain's first presidential campaign. I'm also a fan of your podcast. And I laughed out loud when Ben said, everyone I know knows LeBron. In 1972, Nixon won re-election by beating his Democratic senator, George McGovern. Indeed, Nixon won a majority vote in 49 states, including McGovern's own South Dakota. Only Massachusetts voted for the challenger. McGovern was no Hillary Clinton. He won only a third of the voters, roughly 38%. All of that is to set up the famous comment of the New Yorker film critic Pauline Kael, who said, I can't believe Nixon won. I don't know anyone who voted for him. So he's basically comparing me to the most myopic uh, media member of the 20th century. Then James writes in, and he says, as someone who lived in the United Kingdom and moved to Melbourne, Australia, one of the things I've always been interested in is the reach of LeBron outside the United States, as you guys always make him seem like one of the most famous athletes in the world. As such, over the last few years, I've been asking people I meet at parties, work, networking events, social events, random strangers, if they know who LeBron is. In the UK, I would estimate that nine out of 10 people I meet have absolutely no clue he is. In Australia, basketball is slightly bigger, and I reckon it's about 6 out of 10 who don't know LeBron. In addition, I have also done some research about Europe when on holiday, and it's probably 6 or 7 out of 10 who just don't know who LeBron is, depending on where you go in Europe. Eastern Europe and Spain, it's higher. Elsewhere, it's similar to England. Maybe you guys should step out of your bubble a little bit more. Wow, just scathing takes from Stephen James. And... You know, I I could admit fault here, Michael, um, but you know what? I think I might just double down. If you don't know who LeBron is, (laughs) if you don't know who LeBron is, that's a you problem, not a me problem, right? Like, would you really want to live in a universe, Michael, where you had not experienced the LeBron James uh, career arc over the last 15 years and knowing that there's a Bronny James career arc coming here down the road? Like, I get it, of course you know, living like five miles from the Lakers practice facility, I am far more susceptible to LeBron James coverage than the average person. Also in part because I covered NBA for a living and have for more than a decade. But don't you think that UK and Australia and Spain need to step their game up? Like, am I really as bad as this New Yorker critic from the 70s? This is kind of shocking to me, particularly the the uk and australia um people just not knowing the name lebron james i find in the internet age that we live in with social media that that i just think that that is really surprising but it also reminded me of something uh i don't know if you ever read you probably have been but the 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 book playing for keeps by david halberstam about michael jordan came out yeah it's an all-timer an utter classic Yeah. So there's this part in there, and I did not go double check this. I'm going off memory from the first time I read it, which is years ago. But I believe that when Jordan was at his peak in terms of popularity, that his name was more popular around the world at anywhere, anywhere in the world than uh, the, 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 the brands McDonald's, Coca Cola, and his name rivaled Jesus Christ. In popularity, so right. that sounds perfectly appropriate to me. Gotta say, <laughs> <laughs> well, what you're really arguing here is that Mike is the goat. He's better than LeBron. Is that what you're saying? 
I am. And I mean, I would yes. just also like to say that uh, I would assume that LeBron would have an even longer reach because this was obviously the early 90s when it was just like the dawn of cable television and uh, for Jordan to be that popular and for LeBron, you know, nine out of 10 people in, in England not knowing who LeBron is like, well, what are, let's, what are let's people be, doing? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Let's be clear. This is not like an official census from this guy. Um, I also wonder about the age factor. Like, do you think LeBron polls better in people who are on social media who are like 30 and under. But I do think that that can actually be its own warping effect. I mean, I think we saw that with some of the election results on Super Tuesday, right? Is like Twitter and the real United States just did not align at all in their opinions of uh, the various presidential candidates. And so I, that's why I think, um, you know, this this dose of perspective, this kind of cynical, oh, you, you goofy little basketball guys, dose of perspective from Stephen James was very valuable here. It, it is good to have... Uh, our worldviews mm-hmm. expanded, and uh, you know, there's no question that we live in a bubble. Um, but this bubble should be bigger. Is the point? Everyone should know who LeBron is. If you don't know who LeBron is, that's a you problem, and fix it immediately. <laughs> All right, uh, we got another question here. Tony writes in. I have a heater for you. Feel free to take a swing. Love it when people are, uh, you know, talking their own questions up. Good job, Tony. He writes. Daryl Morey came out against bad NBA commentators this week. He said they were hate-watching games, Uh, and he was talking about how, uh, you know, in the NFL, maybe you get more positive commentary about the sport as compared to, you know, some NBA broadcasts where they're just sort of bemoaning the the rise of the three-point shot and everything else. Tony writes, should the NBA completely reevaluate their commentator lineup, especially for primetime games? Shouldn't they have done this a long time ago? Why am I shaking my fist in the air? Michael, I don't think you and I have ever talked about this. So I'm very curious and I don't know your take on this. But if you were, you know, deputized by Adam Silver to quote unquote, fix or, uh, you know, set up uh, the NBA's broadcasting groups, and of course, it's not really the NBA's call on that. I think they probably have some influence, but, you know, ESPN and Turner get to pick their talent. Um, would you make major changes? Would you try to steer the current commentators a certain direction? What would your plan of action be? I think, by and large, I'm more okay with the crop of national color commentators um, than you know you see on Twitter. But there's definitely some room for improvement, and I think. One thing that Daryl Morey was referencing here, and, and by and large, was analytics and how a lot of the former players just have such a distaste and just an outright ignorance for how the game is being played and why it's being played the way that it is. And so, I mean, I don't know if we're going to get into, like, I don't want to name names here for whatever reason, but. There are yeah, a bunch of don't get fired from this podcast, Michael. Okay, so there are <laughs> there are a few uh, 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 national color commentators who just harp on uh, on the three ball and uh, free throws and and the 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 advantage to drawing fouls and layups and uh, every single time a player hits or even attempts a mid-range jumper, they stand up and applaud. And I like, I just don't get why that is and why that needs to be and why um, people can't accept change and see that the game is super entertaining uh, as is. And if you just like, 
even watching the Rockets, which I know some people really hate watching. I've personally always enjoyed it. And like, I don't get how people don't like watching Russell Westbrook and him like turbo boost from uh, his own paint into the opposing one and taking off from like a foot inside the free throw line and hanging in the air. And I just don't like, I don't get it to be honest with you. And even when they played slow with Chris Paul, I thought that, you know, just watching them break down defenders in isolation and dictating offense, I thought that the strategy was really interesting and they were doing something that no one else was doing. And, you know, it was not homogenous as a lot of the game is played today. So, like, I just, I don't know. It's The game is how it is. It's evolving because of analytics. It's exciting. Like, just deal with it, people. So it sounds like you want to do, like, a brainwashing clinic. Like, you want to take all these angry, kind of uh, cynical old broadcasters, maybe bring them to a classroom at the Sloan Conference and just really, like, indoctrinate them in what the modern game is all about. And maybe through education we can get a friendlier tone. That might be a, a first step. Um, I'm with it, um, for sure. I think that that would be helpful. Um, I don't see the need for major changes. I think that a lot of the personalities they've got in those spots are funny, um, or at least engaging and they do resonate outside of the basketball Twitter sphere. And again, I do think that like the gap between sort of the casual fans knowledge of the game and basketball Twitter's very high basketball IQ is significantly different and that that gap is a, a major cause for why I think diehards tend to be lower on those broadcasters than say casual fans but we don't want any miseducation and and um, you know distraction going on from that group I think that their minds and hearts need to be in the right place and I do question that on, on in some cases of like will these guys ever get over it how many years of the rise of the three-pointer do we hear uh, need to hear complaints about at the same time, though, I think the Rockets are being a little bit disingenuous here, right? Like, I'm with you that their style is more entertaining than they get credit for. But, Michael, when they're flopping around and doing all the, you know, Harden's <laughs> tricks and everything else, they can't come back around and expect everyone to love watching that, right? Like, they're trying to have it both ways, and they know it. And if they don't know it, they're completely in denial. And so that's why I think, you know, when you're making a statement like, oh, I don't know why anyone couldn't enjoy watching these guys. I know a lot of reasons uh, that people would not enjoy watching these guys. And most of them have to do with like, you know, replay reviews and gripes about was I fouled when I was shooting a three pointer and, you know, all those kinds of tricks of the trade, which to me are, uh, you know, impressive you know, basketball constructions in a certain degree, but not particularly watchable from a casual fan standpoint. Sure, I see that, but like Giannis gets to the free throw line not as much as Harden, but a ton. Zion gets to the free throw line already a ton, and I don't well, really hear it, it, the same it, types of criticisms. Yeah, but come on, Michael, it's not a quantity issue, right? It's it's a <laughs> it's an aesthetics issue, right? I mean, come on. Um, I will say also that sometimes it goes the other way for me, where an announcer will be a little overzealous about the product. And uh, there was one play in a recent Pelicans-Laker game where it was on ESPN and they were cutting to a commercial break and right before they were showing a replay of Zion missing a dunk and the announcer was like fawning over his athleticism and talking about the missed dunk. I was like, 
we can say that he's screwed up. Like, it's okay to be critical here. It's not like the end of the world if Zion is not this godlike figure. So sometimes it goes the other way with me. But in general, I would just really appreciate it if, uh, as you said, like, for the casual fan who does not maybe understand what analytics are or the impact they've had, to hear constantly that they're a bad thing or to, uh, you know, see a player. There was one play in a Nets Laker game that I went back and rewatched because I just could not believe the call um, where Wilson Chandler pump fakes from the three point line, drives in, hits a layup. And the announcer is like, see, that's why analytics are bad. And it's like, well, no, <laughs> the lay- a layup is an efficient shot. No one is arguing that. So sometimes it's just like there's a lot of ignorance on the issue. And I wish there was an educational program from the people who are calling these games. Yeah. And I, I also think like when you're talking about some of the overhyping and positivity, I mean, I think that that can go too far, too. Like, especially on the local broadcast, it used to just grind my gears where they're like, actively arguing with the referees like during games um or they're hyping up their role guy for like you know national awards when like they're not even in the conversation i mean i think that stuff can be really distorting too so it can go too far either way uh, but i do think that the national product is the most important from the league's perspective and i'm not sure it's so bad that there needs to be like an intervention from the league office But I do feel like there should be some like healthy conversations between the business partners, right? Of like, hey guys, like we're all in this together, right? Are are we doing the absolute best we can to grow the game here? Um, And, you know, what are some strategies where we can make the announcers feel like they're still expressing their true viewpoints while also uh, not kind of undercutting an entire generation of guys? You know, I think there can be a healthier balance there. but uh, I don't feel the need to like swing at Tony's heater and say, fire everybody. Um, I think there's <laughs> a lot of guys who are doing a really good job. I mean, look no further than Doris Burke on national television clowning the Knicks for the Porzingis trade. You know, during the middle of a week where uh, the Mavericks are putting together this great stretch, Porzingis is playing amazing, and the Knicks are beefing with Spike Lee, right? Like, that takes a certain level of guts to do that. Um, it's a big stage, you know, you're going to go viral on Twitter for, you know, taking a shot like that. And she did, it was the right button to hit. She was a hundred percent correct. It doesn't necessarily make the Knicks look good, but it was honest. It was fair. And I loved it. And I think there's lots of moments like that over the course of a season where the people who are in those prestige jobs are doing it the right way. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Dorisberg is great. And I, I personally judge color commentators on like, are they saying something on the broadcast that I am actually learning? Because I know that they're speaking to a watered down audience. And there's a lot of people out there who don't watch as many games as I do. But, you know, sometimes like I know Jeff Van Gundy gets a bad rap. Um and he's not as enthusiastic about the game sometimes. And he, he is one of those people who does kind of criticize the aesthetic uh, that we're seeing right now. But he says things on the broadcast that, like, I'll, I mean, I keep a notebook when I watch basketball games. And I'll have written something down or uh, and then he'll follow up and he'll say the exact same thing. Or he'll point something out that I missed and I'll go back and I'll rewind it and I'll look for it again and I'll learn something about a defensive coverage or a rotation that he saw in real time, which is just like super impressive to me because um, the game moves just so ridiculously fast. But there are um, there are announcers out there who are really good at that. And so I also want to you know shut those people out. 
Yeah, for sure. I'm, I love Van Gundy. I think he's great. I know he gets a lot of crap, um, but I think that he does an excellent job educating and he's providing insight. Um, when you started your thing about uh, the national broadcasters and you were sort of like waiting uh, to hear them like educate you, I thought you were going to say that you were waiting to hear them talk about what you had written. That's where it seemed like it was going. So, uh, well, in any event, um, I think that's enough about uh, trying to cancel the NBA's television coverage. And they actually have been bringing in some uh, some new blood, by the way. You know, I've noticed a lot of new faces over there at Turner. I know they went through some you know, transitions in terms of, I don't know if it was layoffs or reductions or whatever, but uh, they've kind of overhauled their Tuesday night lineup. Um, and we'll see how well those new personalities stick, if people like them better um, or whatever else. I don't think it's a completely static product. Uh, in other words, I do think there's some evolution happening. Um, all right, Michael, we got time for maybe one or two more questions. And Thaddeus writes... Picture this for me. Philadelphia gets crushed 4-1 by the Miami Heat in the first round. The aesthetics are as bad as the result with guys arguing, sulking, and Embiid getting teed up multiple times for throwing fits after not getting calls. Boy, Thaddeus's uh, mental image here is just very dark and gruesome. Uh, maybe we should test it's, him. It's for- also what's probably going to happen, but... Well, I was going to say that's either here nor there. (laughs) We test him for coronavirus, but maybe he's just, you know, completely healthy. Um, Meanwhile, Thaddeus writes, Brooklyn takes Toronto to a surprising seven game series with Dinwiddie and Levert each averaging 25 plus points a game in Kyrie's absence. The Nets decide let's lean further away from the chemistry thing because we need to make Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving happy. So the 76ers respond by trading Joel Embiid to the Nets for Jared Allen, Spencer Dinwiddie, Torian Prince, and Brooklyn's top four protected picks in 2021 and 2023. So what do you make of Thaddeus's mental construct? How realistic is it is? You're already hinting that you think this will happen. Um, and then what do you make of the idea as uh, of... Brooklyn as the Joel Embiid landing pad. That's not an idea that I'd really heard floated out there, but I thought it was pretty intriguing from Thaddeus. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to be the person who's guaranteeing that or or just am so gung-ho on Simmons and Embiid breaking up because um, Simmons in large part especially has taken strides over the past before he hurt his back was taking strides that I thought were pretty meaningful. Um, But to talk about this trade, like, I love it. (laughs) I love everything about it. Um, For the Nets, like... You're you're the favorite to win the championship next year, like hands down. I don't really even care who else is on the team. Like if KD is eighty five percent of what he of what he was before, and Kyrie recovers from his surgery, um, like I just don't see anyone beating them in a playoff series. Like how do you guard that team? It's just it's it's ridiculous. Top three talent uh, and talent rules the day in the NBA uh, more times than not. Um, I will say just. In getting in particulars about the the package to make it a little more realistic, like if I was Philly, I'm asking for Karis Levert instead of Spencer Dinwiddie, and like there's going to be no protections or maybe top one protection on these picks because I'm giving away someone who I already punted, like as an organization, five years in the process to get someone like Joel Embiid. There is no uh, franchise caliber star that is coming back to me. Uh, in this package, even if it's Karis LeVert, he's nowhere near um, someone like Joel Embiid, a franchise player. So uh, 
so yeah, it's uh, it's quite the deal. I like it for yeah. both sides. Yeah, I wonder if you can get Allen, Dinwiddie, and Levert um, in this deal. I mean, what do you think? Like, I, I do feel like if you're Brooklyn, you face significant pressure to kind of go all in, right? Because I don't think that their current group has shown enough that it's going to be able to really complement uh, the Kyrie and Kevin duo. I think that you do need to get more top-end talent. And if you get a player like Embiid, now you become this big-time destination where, like, you know, all the veteran minimum guys and buyout guys want, got, want to go play for you because you've got this clear-cut big three and, and you're established, right? So I think you can afford to overpay in that scenario. And I wonder how valuable some of those other guys are if you're Brooklyn and your new team has Joel Embiid. You know what I mean? Is there room for all of those players? So it's a very fascinating uh, trading partnership uh, given, I guess, like, you know, the the division, uh, not rivalry, but, you know, the, the geographic location. I and mean, we don't see a lot of deals like this. But I wonder, like, if you go through around the league and survey, like, what are the best Joel Embiid trades? How many teams could really do better than this Nets package that we're describing? Not too many. And I know you said that you don't want to rush and, and break up Embiid and Simmons, man. The Sixers were here over the weekend. I know people will say, hey, this is a team on paper that's capable of pushing Milwaukee. The vibe around the Sixers right now for me in person was that they're basically a lottery team. I mean, Horford <laughs> was not good. Harris, to me, is doesn't really move the needle either way. He gets his points, but it's not really contributing to winning uh, when the stars aren't out there. They were getting so overjoyed by, you know, Shake Milton's 39 points, which is a great story, but it came in a loss and, you know, he, he didn't really show up the next night. And what do you expect, you know, honestly, from a guy like that? Uh, he's not going to be a season saver. Real then, quick, Ben, Ben, real quick. Um, right. Let's tell the people that I sent you a text message before that game saying, enjoy the Shake Milton show. So I just want to tap myself on the back for that one. Yeah, no, it was a great call by you. And I think I actually even put out a stat in your honor that he was the only Sixers player besides Embiid and, and Allen Iverson over the last 20 years to score at least 39 points in a game, which is pretty wild. So he's just in, you know, he's headed on a Hall of Fame track here at this point. All, all <laughs> thanks to your uh, prediction text message. But the other factor just about their vibe, Brett Brown is really putting in some work with the media right now. I mean, this guy is going for like 10 minutes after games. He's working up a sweat. He's selling me so hard on everything's possible. And they're taking all these like, you know, positive lessons from these losses. I mean, he is really, really grinding it out. And to me, that part of it almost makes it a little bit more sad, right? Like he should not be this worked up about the lessons taken from road losses in March to teams that are just way better than his team. Like that should just sort of be like another run of the mill day. And instead, like he's got to try to like maintain this uh, aura of positivity because his two best players are MIA and who knows when they're going to be back. And the whole rest of this thing could crumble instantly and he could be out of a job. Right. So that's why I say the whole thing just really kind of felt like a lottery team, not anything close to a contender. And by the way, it also felt like a giant waste of time. I went to both those games and they were not very entertaining. Uh, and, you know, not that I want my nights back because, you know, I, lo I love watching high level basketball, but man, like Philly doesn't have a lot good going on right now. No, they don't. Um, most disappointing team in the league, I think it's safe to say. Uh, but, you know, you get this package, you get Karras, you get Ben Simmons. You get those two uh, two picks that, you know, 
if they're unprotected, could be really valuable because uh, a Joel Embiid, Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant locker room is like might as well just stick uh, like a, a ton of dynamite in there because it's going to be just one of the most combustible environments in NBA history. So who knows well, what will happen? I love how you're talking about this as if this trade is already done because you're so excited to cover this group. I love it. Oh, my uh, God. I can't wait. <laughs> you, you you would be the big winner of this trade. There's no question. But hey, Michael, we have run out of time. We've come to the end of another episode of Open Floor. Guys, thank you so much for all the great questions. You emailed us, openfloormail at gmail.com openfloormail at gmail.com guys check us out on apple Podcasts by searching for open floor that's two words when you find our page scroll down it will say read and review tap five stars it's just that easy to help us spread the word michael is on twitter and instagram at michael Viaz and victor pina i'm on instagram at ben Goliver, and i'm on twitter at ben Goliver. hey michael we will double back next week uh but until then i will talk to you talk soon ben <laughs>